Cordain Richardson stands six feet seven inches. Let me say that again. Cordain Richardson is six feet seven inches tall. Cordain moves as gracefully on the basketball court as his fingers do on the ivory keys of any piano. His dad, a painter and well-loved high school science teacher. His mom, a legendary instructor and authority on all things music. Being raised by these parents allowed Cordain to explore several subjects within the sphere of academia, in addition to diving headfirst into the arts. He admits that his painting ability peaked at age 12. Evidently, watercolor, acrylics, and oils were not in his future. But that was okay. He still had music. With an expert teacher as a mother, it wasn't a bad plan B. Cordain started playing the piano at age 3. And by age 14, he had completed all examination levels of the Associated Board of the Royal Schools of Music. He was sure that this was his calling. After completing university in San Diego, he decided to reach higher and completed his master's at the Berkeley School of Music's campus in Valencia, Spain. Today, Cordain is an excellent musician and a composer, meticulous yet emotive. His compositions are informed by the countless hours of classical music which he practiced on his parents' piano, yet still brushed with the rhythms of soca, dancehall, and reggae that his ears could not avoid growing up in the Caribbean. His work puts him in a world where entertainment and the arts intersect and live happily. Cordain Richardson. Remember his name. If you can't, please write it down. It is poised to be amid great media composers like John Williams. Yes, he has quite a ways to go. But if what he has accomplished is any indication, he'll get there. Here is the story, thus far, of Cordain Richardson. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. is a composer from the Caribbean based in London on his way to scoring your favorite films, television shows, and video games. Cordain Richardson, welcome to Planet 30. Good to be here. What's up? Good to have you, my friend. So Cordain, tell me, growing up on the island of Anguilla, a place obviously I'm very familiar with, you, I'm going to ask a question that I think thousands and thousands of music students on the island have been dying to know. What was it really like growing up with the famous Miss Jacobs? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, music, music, music. Well, I mean, it was music, 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 but it was academics, um, just in general. So... You know, school came fast for, you know, pretty much uh, all years up until, you know, graduation from high school, from Sixth Farm. Um, 
it's I think she has the strict reputation which it, it was there you know it kept me it kept me focused for sure in school but um you know overall I guess some people might think it was worse than it actually was some people might think it was better I don't know but I mean to me formative years are like the most important and it, it actually was a really good you know you look back at it and it's really good um a really good upbringing to have you know it puts you on a, a path to success almost and I feel like that manifested pretty well so yeah you you do know that to, to many of us in music your mother is a legend right yeah I mean you hear it all the time and I mean you definitely see it I mean she was involved in so many different things in music on the island and um you know I feel like it's generations of people that she, that she would have taught, you know, people Indeed. Who, who, you know, I mean, I was in a class, uh, I remember first and second farm, you know, starting, well, you know, starting school over there, and that was an interesting thing, because, you know, having your mother as a teacher. Oh, in, oh, I, exper- I, I experienced it as well, I know what it's like. Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly, and, you know, the one high school on the island and whatnot, so that was an interesting experience, but... You know, I would have been there in her class, and then, you know, a generation before me, some of my classmates, parents, and whatnot, she also would have taught some of them. I think I think so, I still owe my mother homework, but that's another story. <laughs> right. So, I mean, definitely she's been around, and she definitely has made an impact, and I feel like, you know, most people come to appreciate it, so that's, that's really good. And while we're on the subject of parents, of course, we have to give your mother a lot of credit. But equally, we have to give your dad a lot of credit. And he is yep. an uh, an excellent painter and artist in his own right. Yep. And, I mean, we had discussions about a lot of things. But, you know, it, it becomes, uh, it has become more evident, you know, over time how much of the, my meticulousness, I would say. I mean, it comes from both of them. But, you know, his level is... To some degree, that's just, I don't know if people understand, but anything he does, I mean, he, he, he taught um, science in the, in the high school, but, I mean, he did, you know, as you said, painting and, you know, artwork and whatnot, and he was just very meticulous with how he did things that had to be done proper and well, and, uh, you know, he also did, like, construction stuff, and it went over to that, you know. I mean, my mom made a joke, uh, I think it was yesterday, actually, um, where she was basically saying... You know, he would hang a door and it had to be perfectly hung or, you know, he'd have a problem with it. You know, he would see it. He'd feel it. I mean, I feel like that translated to me, you mm-hmm. know. And and I guess it's whether it's genetics and or, you know, just seeing it growing up, you know, that 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 type of, 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 of diligence, um, it really sets a good example. So, you know, that was also a very helpful thing. So did you did you know? I mean, your dad's a painter. He's involved in other forms of art. Uh, mm-hmm. Mom, obviously, a musical guru. At which point did you choose, or did you gravitate toward music uh, more than other forms of art, or was it that you? Well, I have a funny story. Um, <laughs> I don't remember what age I would have been at the time, but let's just say my my drawing skills. I feel like they peaked when I was about 12. Okay. And and, and that was that. But I remember one instance where uh, my dad was trying to teach me how to paint sometime when I was younger. And um, 
he had canvas and he was, you know, doing his thing and whatnot. And I had just, you know, a regular sheet of paper. And I, you know, I was just trying to follow along, you know, you get some paint or whatnot. But it came to a part of, like, wetting the brush. Um, and, you know, well, I basically just soaked it. Oh. <laughs> and then I put, put it back in some paint. But it was just a dripping, soaking wet brush. And I started to paint on this paper. And, you know, paper plus water equals not a good day yeah <laughs> and let's just say after that experience i think painting just kind of went south for me <laughs> so, so what, what age were you when you actually started music though Ooh, start i mean as, as long as i remember to be honest because i mean my mom she pretty much had me on some form of music when i came out right. um the earliest memory I think I have would have been somewhere around four or five, I feel like. Um, I think I had, like, I played, I remember playing, like, a C major scale. Uh, my mom had, like, an old piano that was, you know, two and a half step down. You couldn't really retune it because the strings were so fragile and whatnot. Some keys wouldn't play. But I remember playing, like, a C major scale on that piano somewhere around that age. It would have been, like, somewhere around four, I want to say, give or take a year. Um, and then it just kind of continued up from there. I, like, I couldn't really say no. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, four years old, and then you go up to five, six, you know, pre- uh, preschool, primary school, and whatnot. And, you know, I did ABRSM exams. And um, and for those that don't know, what is ABRSM? Uh, so, ABRSM stands for the Associated Board of the Royal Schools of Music. Uh, it's an examination board in the United Kingdom um, that administers, you know, music exams, music theory exams, and then like practical exams for different instruments. All so over the world. Over time, I did the music theory exams as well as the piano practical exams. But there's a host of other, you know, instruments you could you could take examinations for. Right. And so, um, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, uh, no, you go ahead. <laughs> no, I was asking that at what point did you realize that you had musical talent because you had the incident with the paintbrush that didn't go too well. So uh, at what point did you say, okay, I think this is my thing. Like, I, I actually may have some talent in music. I mean, another funny story is, I mean, I guess I I had the talent that I had, I guess. I mean, I play piano, I mean, well enough to, you know, have certain opportunities and stuff to play and whatnot. And I knew, like, I did a high enough level of music there to have a, a, a good understanding of music. Um, but I had told myself I wasn't really going to pursue music that much. Um, I mean, not to cast it away necessarily, but I got much more into a technical uh, mind space almost. And... Like, everything was just leading to something in, in, a, in a technical field. I mean, I think up to maybe fifth form, I was, you know, leaning towards architecture. And music was like a thing, but it was like, yeah, it's that thing that I learned because my mom was a music teacher. And, you know, it was that. But came, it came really... naturally. Right. Um, and so I guess it's just like through, you know, growing up and whatnot, you know, after high school, went to, went to university. And I feel like that's where the shift of, like, maybe I can do something with music because of, you know, what I know and whatnot, it kind of shifted. It still actually stayed pretty technical because, you know, my degree program that I did in school was 
kind of like a, a mix between the two. So it still stayed technical, but that was probably the, the, the point where it started to shift towards, hey, you can actually focus on, you know, music as something to do. Got it. For career. Got it. Going back a little bit, though, uh, how many how many instruments do you play? Um. Okay, so this is a question. Um, piano is my main instrument, and I should practice it a lot more, but that's a different story. But um, piano is my main instrument. It's an instrument I played for uh, a lot of years. I don't even know how many to count right now, but I want to say it's maybe 20 years at this point, depending on how you start counting. Um, but over time, I have played... The trumpet in um, the concert band at school, Mr. Vanderpool. Um, I played the uh, steel pan with Mr. Martin in the high school as right. well. Um, and then I feel like there's there's instruments that I don't say that I play because I don't like I I can I can make song. You know what I mean? I can play a few notes or whatnot, maybe a song or two. What are we talking but, about um, the, the, the the marimba, the xylophone? <laughs> Oh, I mean, with the, you see, and it's funny because technically, I guess it's, it's, it's what you consider what you play. Because when you consider someone who's actually a professional, like a percussion player, like who plays those as you know professionals, I cannot do what they can do. Mm-hmm. And even though it's like mentally, it's like yeah, you could think of it as a piano or whatnot, layout wise, the 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 skill of what you have to do to play it. I mean, younger me would have been like, oh, yeah, it's the same thing. But once you get out there and you actually see people who this is their instrument, you realize, okay, this is a different level. A different to level. Yep. Yep. I mean, just just techniques of like holding. Like I could play I could play them with like, you know, two mallets, one in each hand kind of thing. But then you see professionals with, you know, two in each hand. I'm not even going there. So it's like, yeah, that's, that's playing this instrument. You know what I mean? Um, so it's like, there's certain things like that where it's like, yes, I can play probably better than someone who, you know, doesn't do music at all. And I can, I can do those instruments, but compared to, you know, the musicians who actually do it, it's just, eh, mm-hmm. I'll let you have that. <laughs> no, in, in, in terms of pop music, what did you listen to growing up? Because I know your house would have been filled with classical music. And other traditional forms of music. But in terms of pop music, what did you grow up listening to? Pop? Um, I mean, I focus mainly on a bunch of hip-hop, to be honest. Um, a bunch of it. Like, I would get, you know, classical... Actually, I got... Growing up, I got much more um, well, Calypso and stuff from my dad. Then, you know, living in Angola, you get soca, reggae, etc. From the pop side of things, it just tended to be, I guess... You know, high school especially, it was like J. Cole, Kendrick, um, that kind of stuff. I mean, I would go back to classics and hip-hop, you know, Tupac, Biggie, whatnot. Um, I guess, you know, everybody with Beyonce and stuff like that. I, to, to be honest, it was a lot of just what was what was hot okay. at the time. And then I would kind of just kind of sift through that. Because it's, it's not everything, right? but, you know, I would gravitate to certain things that were like, big in the moment or whatnot. And then there's other times where, you know, I would go and scour for like, um, like, I don't know, there was like a, a ODB thing I would hit up sometimes, you know, older <laughs> like, like, I don't even know how I got there, but you know, it would happen, you right. know, and it's, it's, it's things of that, like, I might know like one song from this obscure artist that's like, I might listen to it 
you know, a hundred times over the course of, you know, a couple months or whatnot. But it's like that one song. You don't ask me anything else about that artist. And I mean, it shifted too because, like, I remember I had the binge, like, when MJ died, like, I just listened to straight up just all MJ music for, I don't know, months. Um, and then things shift to something else after that. So, I mean, it was kind of fluid. Mm. Uh, I was pretty much open to genres. I mean, I had rock times where I'd go to, like, uh, let's say Aerosmith, or um, i check the Beatles out, you know. I just had moments, I guess. <laughs> so... So on an on an island where and especially in the smaller islands in the Caribbean where the mm-hmm. band culture is so prevalent you being a well first of all again the son of 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 of, of a music maestro and being very talented yourself one would think that you would have been heavily recruited by a lot of soca bands was that the case I had I had uh, I had a good number of people ask me to play. I mean, it was like a thing of oh, you play keys, so you can play this. I mean, you could join this band, you could do this. Um, my cousin, one of my cousins, uh, I remember way back in the day, he was he was trying to start a band, and like that was probably the only thing I took you know somewhat seriously at that time. I was like, okay, this could be a thing I might get into because I was family, you know. Um, but that didn't really take off in any way, so that just kind of died down, and that was literally the only thing that I ever really gave. I mean, I I had a few instances where uh, I tried to help, like, you know, help a band with a little, I don't know, whether it's a little arrangement or something, not for competition, but just, you know. But did, did I, if I recall, did you perform on stage for Carnival a couple times? Uh, yeah. Um... I did a few times. Uh, wasn't wasn't necessarily my first choice of what to do, but <laughs> um, yeah, so, I am a behind the scenes person. But somebody got you. Yeah. Somebody got you on stage. Yeah, it is. It, it was like a, you need to do this. You don't option. I was like, I'm very sure I'm not. They were like, Yeah, you are. And it's like, all right, well, can't really fight it at that point. So had a couple times. Um, it wasn't really too much to do with bands. Um, I remember one time was the talented team performance. Um, I think it was with Unicor. Um, accompaniment stuff for the much really, but yeah, a couple times. But like I say, it wasn't really my, my cup of tea. I wasn't searching for it, so. Duniqua as in Neek. She's a wonderful artist as well in the UK. Yep. Yep. So she stuck with music as well. <laughs> yep, I mean, she is. I think she had a release recently. Um, she, I mean, she's pretty much consistently releasing. So um, definitely check her workout. Yep. So composition. Do you mm-hmm. remember the first composition you ever did, and and how old you were? instances where you could classify something as a composition that I don't necessarily remember, but the first instance of a composition that I recall that was significant enough would have been CXE. Actually, no, no, no. It would have been uh, ABRSM. Um, I, I could be wrong on this, but either I think it might have been grade 5 of the music theory exams where they started uh, introducing like little composition things that, things that you had to do. 
Um, and that was like probably the initial stage of like me having to to actually compose like somewhat seriously. Um, you know, back then it was more of you know following classical rules um, for composition for certain things. I mean, you might you know write a fugue and the counterpoint had to be a certain way or whatnot. Um, but it was like that was that period, you know, grade five up through seven for ABRSM, which I would have been. Hmm, when did I do that? I feel like that would have been maybe like nine, ten years old, somewhere around wow. there. Wow. Yeah, something like that. Because I finished, I finished the, I finished the ABRSM when I was about fifteen. Interesting. So yeah, I think I would have maybe like ten or so. I would have, I would have, you know, started getting introduced to it and actually started making little things. I mean, and it was, you know, very basic. You know, maybe one line, maybe two line compositions, but um, you know, it kind of started from there and. It built up. It went from maybe RSM, CXC. We had requirements to do arrangement and compositions. And so I did a couple of things there. And then it just kind of went. So most people do CXC at the age of 16. This is the examinations that you take in most English-speaking Caribbean islands. Um, mm-hmm. And you do it at around age 16. You did music for CXC before that. Yeah, so um, I ended up doing... CXC music when I was 14 in second form. Well, 14 or 13. Second form. I don't remember exactly. Which would be the, the American equivalent of the eighth grade. Yeah. Wow. Pretty much. And, um, I mean, that was pretty much a decision because I had, like, CXC music is, at least in my time, I don't, I don't really follow it too much now, but it was about the equivalent of grade five theory for ABRSM. The content, at least, was similar. And I had already finished grade five. I think I was, I would have been probably at six or seven at that point. So it was just kind of like, well, you could wait three years to do it, or you could just do it now. Right. I mean, the SBAs and stuff that would have been required would have been the main difference from, you know, ABRSM content. But besides that, it was just like, yeah, like the, the subject material you should know. Um, so yeah, it was just like a decision. I mean, my mom basically asked me, it's like, do you think you would be able to do it? But actually, I don't even think it was that much of a question. I feel like I'm putting it that way, but it's much more of a, you're going to do it. You're doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, ABRSM, there's Mm -hmm. eight levels, eight grades to ABRSM. The, the, again, the Associated Board of the Royal Schools of Music in, in, uh, in the UK, you finished all eight levels as a teenager. Yeah. There are adults that haven't finished half. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if some of those adults have the uh, parental push as well to, to, to complete. I mean, they're, uh, I think it's, they would have two theory exams per year, I think. It was okay. Yeah, I think it was two. So, so two theory a year uh, and one practical per year. So basically, for most of the, the years, I did two per year, um, which helped to accelerate it. But it was also just like you're doing this one, you're doing this one, you're you're going up to eight. Because what a lot of people do is also they stop at six, five or six, because that's generally a good 
place where you know enough music to, you know, do something with it. Become a teacher or... Right. I mean, like I said, CXC music goes up to about, you know, grade five, which is which is good. And then six is like a really good... I mean, I don't want to say it's a good stopping point because I'm sure, you know, ABRSM wants everyone to do up to eight. But, you know, there's enough material there for you to, to have a good grasp on, you know, music. But, um... I was going to go to eight because I knew I had no, you know, choice in the matter per se. I mean, yes, I did, but it was like, why not? There's two more. You already did six. So, you know, when it gets put that way, it's just kind of like, yeah, okay, fine. Let's do it. Um, and so, yeah, um, I mean, I kind of, I don't remember exactly what I took. And, but it's, it's eight plus, uh, at least for the practical, it's uh, preparatory exams before that as well. So at least for the practical, there's, um, there's, uh, I guess you could consider it nine, eight and a half, nine, whatever. But, um, yeah, it was just, you know, the first couple ones went pretty quickly, pretty easily. Um, and then I feel like when I hit maybe grade four, it started to be like, okay, this is, you know, a little bit more in-depth um, concepts and whatnot. And I feel like I might have slowed down and taken, like, one exam per year at that, sorry, at that time, but you know, I had to push. It was like, you're going to finish it. And so that's what happened. <laughs> got it. Got it. So yeah. flying from high school into college and you're doing, first of all, explain your major in college because it's, is it, is it a major that you were able to put together yourself? To a degree. Okay. So the fun, this is always a, uh, an interesting question whenever the, the degree from a uh, university in the U.S. comes up. Um, what was, your, what was your college? Uh, University of California, San Diego. Um, but yeah, with a degree, it's 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 interdisciplinary computing and the arts major um, with an emphasis in music, pretty much. Um, and so the interdisciplinary part is basically, you can put it together. I mean, you have like a general um, pool of, 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 of courses some are mandatory for everyone in that major. It, the acronym is ICAM. Um, so everyone at ICAM, whether you're music specialist, uh, visual arts specialist, whatever, um, there's a pool that you kind of have to do. Then there's a pool that you have to do depending on your specialization. And then there's, um, you know, a couple other courses to round it out. And you can kind of pick kind of which direction you want to go with things from those extra um those extra, uh, those extra, yeah, pretty mm. much. And so it was pretty much a thing where it's th- there's a separate music technology um, major which is different to it because this one focused a lot more on like actual. It's almost like a baby version of computer science, but with a focus on application in the arts. Got it. So we did a lot of um, you know projects where you know code was involved or you know you use like we program synthesizers using different things one of my professors um was the guy who authored pure data and max and a lot of people probably don't know pure data but a lot of people at least in the music industry um probably to some degree know max because ableton ableton live the the Software. most expensive version of it, let's say, mm. comes with Max. That's probably that's pretty much what drives it up to that price. Um, and yeah, so he, 
I had the, one of my professors was the guy who authored it. And so we basically took his pure data class, which was like the precursor to Max. And we did a lot of um, this like visual audio coding almost. Um, so we did a lot of that stuff, plus, you know, a bit of creative stuff, you know, music production and whatnot, studio work, um, other coding things. You know, I had projects that were, you know, CS-based or EE-based or whatnot. But, yeah, it was a very mixed-in thing just to kind of prepare you for a world of technology and art. Indeed, indeed. Sounds exciting. You took the lessons and the experience and decided to turn that into becoming a composer. What At what point did your mind open up to the possibility of, of scoring movies and television? And when did you arrive at that juncture when you realized that this is what I want to do? So, I can't lie. Uh, it, 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 was, it was partially to do with um, just trying to figure out what was next because um, I finished I finished university a bit earlier than I would have, would have expected and um, it was it was like you know up leading up to that point it was like okay I have things that I know I can do but it was broad to a point where it was like okay which direction of everything that I know do I want to go in I knew I really wanted to, to, to keep exploring the creative side of a lot of it. And I had done some projects and whatnot where I had to, like, you know, compose things or, you know, just create things um, musically. And I enjoyed them enough to be like, this could be a thing, you know? And as much as I like the tech side of things, I was like, I like tech at my pace. And I don't know if that kind of works with you know, trying to jump into, you know, doing tech-based things, you know, full-time. Um, and so just around the, the end of, I mean, that would have been, I don't know, 2017, 2018, um, it started creeping into my mind, oh, I could do, you know, something with music. I mean, it was just music. But then I think what what, what ended up happening is I had the, the interest in, you know, music production, you know, with technology, you know, you produce with mm-hmm. software and you make these things, la la la. Um, I made, I had, I remember I had FL Studio back in the day and I made beats on FL Studio. Um, and, you know, I had that experience. But then I also had the, you know, classical music training experience um, that I grew up with as well. And I had struggled for years to find ways to like blend those two experiences. And, I don't even think I considered film scoring or, you know, media scoring in general as a a thing to do for, well, I don't think I ever did it until someday I was just, you know, looking up things of, you know, things in the industry, things that you can do, things that you can do with these skills. And I just kind of came, came across it and I was like, huh, that could be interesting. And I remember, I'm trying to remember the order of it happening, but I think... There was a summer, it was a summer, it was a summer session. I had a summer session at UCSD. Um, and during that session, I just decided um, I'm going to just try to do a little score to a video. And that Temple Tissues, it was a Temple Tissues ad, a uh, little 
you know, hand-drawn animation type thing that I did. And I did like a little, I think it was a ragtime piece on just piano. And it was interesting. It was interesting. Like, I, I'd never done it. I'd never, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing per se. I was just kind of trying to figure out, you know, how to sync this to the video, how to, you know, just, just the process, you know. And I think just that experience alone, it was a short thing to do, probably a minute, but um, or 30 seconds actually probably, but just that experience alone, all the stuff that I learned within that time, just getting that done was like, ooh, this could be a thing, you know? And then I just did some other stuff and it kind of grew from there. And so once I finished my time at university over there, um, I started looking into schools to to go to um, to further this for a master's. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I applied to a few, but Berkeley was one of the ones that I applied to. They had a, they had a master's program in Valencia. And so once I saw that, it was one that I applied to. They accepted. I mean, it's Berkeley College of Music. So, yeah, that was that was pretty much a, yes, this is what we're doing. <laughs> Just doing your yeah. master's in Spain, did that, did that have a, um, an effect? Like, did the environment affect you differently than, say, had you stayed in the States? I mean, it's, it's definitely different, um, you know, culture and you know lifestyle and whatnot is definitely different um general i mean it was a one-year master program and so a lot of it was just you know focused on just school 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 getting stuff done getting assignments done and the school itself was i mean as much as it could be in spain still very americanized um so i mean there was a lot more students from you know other countries and whatnot and um you know, the teachers and stuff, the professors and whatnot, they were, they were mixed. I mean, pretty much all my professors for my degree program were Spanish um, or, you know, had lived in Spain for X amount of years. Um, but, you know, you go out and, you know, your inspiration is different because, you know, the music you might hear around you is different or the events that happen around you are different. And so when it comes back to doing those assignments, even though you're focused on them, or because you're focused on them and they're in your head all the time, all those other influences that come in kind of start to play a play a role in how you how you might write. I mean, and it's, it's probably just, you know, subconscious. You're not thinking about it, but it's there, mm-hmm. you know? How's your, um, your Spanish? Oh, I'm not as good as it should be. You know, <laughs> three years in Southern California, right next to the Mexican border, and one year in Spain. And let's just say it's it's working. You oh, know, you should. With four years of Spanish, you, you should be starring in telenovelas. Uh, I I use. I mean, you know, the, the the three years in the U.S. It's like a you should have, but it's the U.S., so you still you still have people speaking English. So I just didn't really pay much attention. Then once you hit Spain, it was like, ah, right, this is going to be, be people who won't understand your English. So, you know, that year there, certain things I had to learn and it got better, but... And it's a different, know, it's a different say, Spanish accent in Spain as well. Well, that, it, is, it, is, it is definitely that. And I mean, there's some things where, I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it's, I feel like it's the, it's the case of, I know the Spanish that I know and it's not of any extremely high level of proficiency. So the accent only plays so much of a part because there's so much that I don't understand regardless. That, <laughs> you know, 
great. I can pick out that you say this differently, but then I don't know, you know, three quarters of the rest of what you just said. So, you know, my bad. But I've been talking to like the taxi drivers and stuff. So, you know, it was fine. I knew enough to have, you know, a long enough conversation to, to get somewhere. But, um, that was about it. The school, you know, we, we learn in English and everything. So there's really as much as, 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 as needed. But, you know, I had my encounters with some, you know, little old Spanish ladies that I felt so bad because, you know, some of them came and asked me things. And I'm just like, I do not know how to help you because I do not know what you're saying to me. I'm sorry. Lo siento. <laughs> Lo siento. But, yeah, that's about, that's, that was it, you know. Work, working proficiency, limited working proficiency. I think that's that's how they put it. <laughs> Got it. So I read somewhere that you um, you said that your music, uh, mm-hmm. the music that you do, mm-hmm. you described it as well calculated but emotive. Yeah. So I mean, and this goes back to like what I was saying about my dad earlier with um, with just you know diligence and. Just, I get really particular with certain things, um, and so it's like a, it's like a thing of you can't have. I mean, I feel like you can't roboticize music too much. You won't have the feeling, and it just won't connect with people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't just you know make everything just strict. But at the same time, there's a level of precision that I just I can't not have. If you if you get what I mean. Uh, it's just a personal thing. And so I'll do certain things where it's, you know, it might be in the mixing phase where I'm just trying to get this this one thing to just sit a certain place in the mix. And if it doesn't do it, I'm I'm just focused. It's, it could be like one note. And I'm just going to, you know, automate stuff and do this until that note is where I need it to be. Or I might EQ things a certain way in the mix. Or when I'm composing, it's like, I may, I mean, the composing aspect is more of a... I might try to, you know, orchestrate something a certain way to where this instrument can come in at a certain time, or maybe I write a melodic line that's like, you know, it's it's maybe it's reminiscent of something else, and I, I might just try to hide it in, or you know, it, it manifests in different ways, but it's it's generally just a very, um, you know, if you can you can almost break it down. I mean, you can break down pretty much any form of music but you can almost break things down or I try to make it possible to break things down and find other layers to things that you probably wouldn't realize was were there if you just you know took a quick listen right so yeah so Cordain tell us about the intersection of art and technology this is very exciting stuff but what does this what does this mean for music as we know it where is this thing going well I mean technology I mean, in art in general, I mean, I focus on music, yeah, but it, it's 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 already here um, in many different forms. I mean, most people at least nowadays know, you know, you do, we don't use tape machines as much to mix. I mean, people try as much if you can get your hands on one, you know, analog mixing desks or, you know, tape machines or whatnot. You try to get it for that, you know, nostalgic sound that everyone knows from back in the days when you had to use it. But technology is already here for, you know, digital audio workstations. Um, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. I mean, there's, 
you stream music though. You don't. <laughs> I remember the first time my mom said she went to a class. She was still teaching, and she was like, "Children didn't know what CDs were," and I was just <laughs> like, "Like, you know, it's, it's that point of like, I don't feel that old, but like, like I remember getting a discman." <laughs> And that was like a thing because I would I would be like to my dad who had a Walkman I would be like hey this is my Disman and now you're telling me that you know CDs aren't a thing and it's like well oh yeah the you know but um I mean it's it, everything's turning digital and on the back of that you know certain experiences certain listening experiences um or just art experiences are turning towards a digital thing more you know I had. I had experiences with uh, augmented reality when I was in university in San Diego, you know, and that's, you know, a relatively new way of experiencing, um, well, art or whatever. You know? I was going to ask you that. What is that? What is augmented reality? Can you explain that? So, so there's virtual reality, which is, you know, the headset that you put on, you pretty much, you know, transform into another world that you see in the headset. But uh, augmented reality is basically when you overlay, um, like computer generated imagery or whatnot into the real world. So, and I mean, it's pretty much, it's pretty much everywhere. <laughs> um, you know, your Snapchat filters and whatnot is technically a form of that because right. it's, it's you there, but it's something superimposed into your real world. So, I mean, all those different things, you know, I remember Snapchat had the, the things where you could like have your little character on a desk or something. If you pointed the phone at it, you know, it's, it's stuff like that, you know? And uh, I feel like the visual side of it, you know, gets the people before the audio side almost all the time. Um, people tend to tend to gravitate towards. Well, the visual give us an example of um, what augmented reality would be like uh, for the audio side. Well, so when we, I mean, for audio, it's 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 generally the same or similar for virtual and augmented, but basically, it's trying to take. It's, it's, it's a concept of uh, spatial audio. So audio, I mean, regular stereo audio is just, I mean, mono is one, so one single source. Mm -hmm. Stereo is two, so two sources, so your headphones, one on the left, one, the, one on the right. And then spatial audio tries to emulate audio in the real world, like, you know, you hear a car passing you on the street. You know, the sound moves from, you know, wherever the car is down the street and as it passes you, you know, the sound moves with it. And also, you know, like for example, perfect example, um, like an ambulance going down the street. Mm -hmm. you, know, you have the sound of the ambulance moving and you have that directionality. You have the position of it, you know, so you know where it is. But then you also have the Doppler effect that you hear when the sirens go like, and then the pitch changes. You also have all that to include. So it's trying to, you know, replicate sound in space as accurately as possible. I mean, and just putting that into the world, it, it, it adds to the immersion of, well, virtual and augmented reality. So, you know, that's, I mean, I had a, I had a classmate, I don't remember which one it was actually, sorry, but um, he did a, he did a, a final project that was pretty much on um, HRTFs, and this is, you know, more technical stuff, but it's uh, head-related transfer functions. And, it's basically trying to build on that um, that whole thing of getting realistic audio. And one of the issues you have is you can try to map sound for people, but people hear things slightly differently. Our ears are shaped differently. You know, we receive the sound differently. And it's, it's basically a way to try to 
have people have a way to experience the sound as similarly as possible, even with those, you know, biological differences and whatnot. I mean, that's a extremely basic, you know, thing with it. I only had a, a basic, um, basic experience with it in school, but, um, you know, that's another thing that basically comes up when you talk about audio and augmented reality. And, I mean, it's only going, like I said, you know, there's people releasing albums that are, you know, for listening and, I mean, well, we've had, you know, stereo, uh, not stereo, sorry, a surround sound, we've had that. And that was just, like, emerging and growing into, you know, these audio experiences, the spatial audio. You listen to music almost as if you're a, if you're in a concert. So if you turn around, you know, now you hear the music from behind you, and if you, you know, that kind of thing. And it's That's all these so cool. That, hmm? that is so cool. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's definitely, it's definitely something that, I mean, it's it's like a we're in the working out the kinks phase before it blows up to go into I guess mainstream or whatnot. Plus, you know, you gotta kind of wait for I don't wanna say wait, but people need the equipment to also you know listen. But I mean, if if history shows, I mean, you know, there was times when surround sound was like a movie theater thing only, and now you got people with home surround sound systems. In your, in your so house, you know, yeah. It's really and once it comes, it's going to be there. So it's like that's that's why I say it's like it's it's important to know these things because you need to be ready for when it comes to be able to apply whatever your art is to you know those new me- new mediums. And it's so, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that um you know musicians in particular and singers have to pay attention to because the entire process of how they think about delivering their albums uh, or singles is going to be altered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's some people, I mean, there's some people who are out there, you know, experimenting and whatnot. And I mean, they may be at different levels of, you know, audiences or whatnot, but there's people experimenting with these things already, you know, they put out music and whatnot, but it's definitely a thing that more and more musicians, I mean, whether you're a singer or a, an instrumentalist, you know, even if you're not like front stage musician, like mixers, for example, you know, mixing and mastering and whatnot, you, you need to be aware of it because, I mean, it's going to come to you at some point. You're probably going to be the one to have to really manage, you know, how this is presented in this new space. So, I mean, down the chain, you know, everyone in the industry pretty much has to has to pay attention to it because, yeah, like I said, it's, it's, it's coming. And, I mean, I guess it's, up to the people to see how much, how much success it sees, but I mean, there's no reason to, to believe that it won't, especially with the way um, VR and whatnot, at least on the visual side, is going. So, yeah, definitely. This is fascinating stuff because I can imagine what you guys are doing with video games in particular, with having <laughs> sounds all around you, and yeah, this is cool. Right, and like... I mean, in games, uh, I really only had my first... I mean, so I had my first, I would say, proper introduction to video games when I went to Berkeley. Yeah, um, so... Was it a game called Avalo Legends? Avalo Legends? Avalo Legends, yeah. Tell us about the game. It was a collective project um, between us and the ESAT school, um, which is... Oh, gosh. Escuela something, 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 tech... Yeah, it's Spanish abbreviation, but it's basically the the video game school that was in Valencia, or one of them at least. And um, they 
Berkeley had a collaboration with Berkeley, so they had a couple of teams of people who, you know, they they had basically game development teams, and then we had audio development teams. And we had learned, you know, audio implementation through FMOD and WISE, which are two programs um, to do audio implementation, which is basically putting the audio into video games. Um, and the thing is, it's, it's a lot different. Video games are, well, one, Video games are, I don't even, I don't know if I can say the new wave now because I think it's past that, but video games are pretty much the entertainment industry giant at this point. Um, mm-hmm. And so we did, um, we did a course on it and basically it was like, okay, this is interactive media. We need to, we need to keep this in the forefront because the difference between, you know, a movie, you know, a video editor, an editor or whatnot, you know, you go through a timeline, this is a linear timeline, you know, this happens after this, happens after this, the end. The same with the audio, this happens after this, this happens after this. But what we had to do and we had to remember throughout is it depends on what the player does. And you have to be able, like, you have to basically shift your mind in everything, composition included, um, when you're doing work for video games because for example if i write music for a scene in in a movie um i just write it based on what i see you know the worst thing that can happen is the editor you know makes a makes an adjustment they they cut something or whatnot then i have to you know conform it but um that's the worst in a sense um that can happen but other than that it's linear in the video game you have to be aware that you might have music that's supposed to play when a player is in one area. Then the music's supposed to shift when they move to another area. Now, I might go and I might just run over there immediately and so the music shifts. Okay, great. You might play the same game. You might stand in the same spot for five minutes. And I can't change the music until you run over there. Oh, wow. You need to compose... So, and, and so, I mean, one, we work with a lot of loops, um, and you need to, I mean, it's a whole different method of, you know, composing to make sure something loops seamlessly, which has to do with, you know, making sure reverbs carry over to the beginning again and whatnot when it loops and, you know, stuff like that. Plus, it needs to be varied enough so it doesn't become monotonous, because if you just loop something over and over and over and over, eventually a player will notice and it'll just be irritating. They'll probably just turn the music off. So you need to, you know, be aware of these things. And, um, you know, you compose to suit, you know? So it's, 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 it's a whole different, like, thinking that you have to go through um, that, I mean, people probably don't really realize what goes into it. But once you do, um, it becomes that thing of, like, okay. This is a different vibe. This is a different. Um, this is a different. I don't know. This is this is different. You know. Got and it. So in that, right. And so that collaboration was um was this thing. It was a first-person shooter. Um, I think they styled it after uh, Overwatch, actually. Um, so yeah, we did we did compositions for it using some of those same techniques. Uh, we did sound design for it. So we had I mean, we had foley sessions recording. You know, different things. Um, you said 40 games. sessions. Foley sessions. Oh, so what, yeah. what is a Foley session? A, uh, it's basically just um, sound recording um, to get sound effects, but we use like just items, whatever we had at our disposal, 
to, you know, make footsteps or make, you know, a gun firing sound or, I don't know, a sword slashing through the air sound, you know, you, uh, like for footsteps, I mean, some, for, for some of it, we just actually just stepped with, you know, shoes and recorded it. Um, but depending on the character, like we had different characters in that game and some of them had like, like one was like, an, well, they were actually all pretty much animalistic creatures. One was like this alien thing and we had to make it squishy. So I don't even remember what we actually used for that, but we used something and, you know, you know, you just kind of use your hands and just walk with it. You record some of that and then you put that in. Um, so that was a Foley session, basically. And we also had a dialogue recording sessions um, for character voices. And that's, I mean, the video game thing is just like movies and TV turned up to 11. Um, <laughs> it really is. Because you're recording, it's like you're recording things for all possible outcomes. So, you know, it's like you record something for if you win, you record something for if you lose, you record something for if this other character wins or if they lose, you know. It's almost, at minimum, always going to be like double. Um, and then, you know, that was a good experience too because it was like, you know, figuring out who does the voices and how to coach people on, you know, doing like, voice acting and whatnot. Um, so yeah, that whole experience was was the 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 main primary um, introduction to video game audio in general because it wasn't just music and composition; it was just the entire audio package. Um, and it was really good because before that, I had done a a small little one level of a video game that I did. I learned Python when I was in school. Well, it was one of the things I learned. And um, I just made this platform game for, for a class. And it was, like, very blunt. You know, it was, you know... I, I learned a lot because it was like, okay, how do I do artwork? Okay, you know, you put this in this way. How to do animations. I had to learn about spreadsheets. And I had to, you know, figure out how to optimize things to work. Because we also had to make it run on a, a Raspberry Pi, if you know what that is. Tiny little computer. Yes. Um, and so, I mean, that was just a good experience to understand game and not just from the audio perspective. Because I feel like getting into, you know, the entertainment industry in general, the more you know, it also helps because you can relate to people. You know, when you do film, for example, the more you can relate to a director, you know, you could you understand what he means by like a match cut or you understand, you know, I don't know, <laughs> you know, when you understand what they mean when they say things, like you go on a spotting session, you're watching the film, and he's like, oh, I want the music to start once we pull out here, and then this, you know, it oh. makes it smoother, because you don't have to ask questions about what do you mean about this, and blah, 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 so, you know, the more you know, it's still, it, it helps, regardless of what you're, you know, Indeed. And thing is. I was going to test your director knowledge just now, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I, feel, I feel somewhat confident, but, you know, <laughs> this could go both ways. <laughs> Which do you prefer, video games or scoring for potential films and television? I feel like they, they, hmm, they both come with their interesting challenges and rewards, almost. I think, hmm, I think the, the, the just outright composer slash child in me <laughs> leans towards, you know, film and whatnot. I mean, I grew up with, you know, Disney and whatnot. And, you know, 
just having that nostalgia attached to you know the music that I saw in films, mm-hmm. whether it was you know those Disney films or anything after. Um, I feel like that pushes me towards that, but then the technical loving side of me gravitates to the video games because, well, it's just a lot more technical. You know, right. there's a different part of my brain that I can access that I have to access when I, when I think about composing for it. So it kind of just depends on, I guess, what mood I'm in. You know, sometimes I feel that technical thing of like, oh, I want to tinker and, you know, implementing audio and like, okay, I want to write something that loops properly so I can put this in and whatnot. And sometimes it's just that side and sometimes it's just like, let's make this beautiful soaring thing that fits in this film, you know? So it kind of, kind of shifts, you know? Do you only do compositions or do you write songs as well? Or compose songs? Mm, so, my songwriting has taken a hiatus. Um, I I have, let's say, scratch pad ideas for stuff. But within the last, I don't know, four or five years, I really haven't focused on it as much because, I mean, when I was doing the, I did the program last year that was pretty much all film scoring, or just not scoring, I should say. So, um vocals or anything of that sort anything that wasn't orchestral or like orchestral hybrid i just wasn't focused on it and then before that i had the three years in university and i wasn't really focused on that too much either so um i do have things that hopefully in somewhat of the near future i can you know start to you know explore but i'm currently no um there's definitely stuff though. We'll we'll see. You know, we got we got to get back to the, I guess, more pop music production side of the brain. Start to get those things down, and um, you know, find a singer, find a you know, performers or whatnot, and you know, go go that route. But it's definitely something that's gonna come back. It's just a matter of when. I have more time now, so probably sooner than later. Hey, you never know. Who's your favorite uh, film composer? Film composer. Mm, okay, so I feel like... Well, actually, no. Let's say it this way. John. John Williams. Williams <laughs> it's, it's like... it's like I don't want to say how can you not say John, but it's like just in, 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 in totality, John. John Williams. I mean, right there for different sets of reasons is Hans. I think one of my favorite things, one of my favorite music moments in film to this day which will always be which i don't know how much i mean it's it's more a sound than anything but the the circle of life from lion king lion uh, king is my favorite yes. lion king has been my favorite soundtrack i feel like it will stay that way or it will definitely stay up there for forever um but the circle of life is 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 way up there and uh, it's funny. I mean, there's so many people that end up working in in these productions. Um, and while I was at Berkeley, we got to meet uh, Maggie Radford. Um, and she was... Oh, let me get this right. Don't... don't. It's just music supervisor, I think she was, for, for, for Lion King. Um, and, you know, she was telling us stories. I remember she came and visited the school, and she was telling us stories about, you know going down to South Africa for recording sessions and whatnot. And it's just like, you know, it hits you. Like, this is a film that, I mean, it came out, what, 96, I think it was, and I was born in 95, so you know, I watched it a couple years later. But, um, you know, here's a person that worked on pretty much something that you 
adore. The film, it's not the composer. A film that defined a generation. Right, exactly. I mean, it's The Lion King. And I mean, you know, she's she's not the composer. She's not Hans. But it's still like the role she played would still have been, you know, so Major. important. That it's like, there's also all this other stuff going, going on. You know, composers, the supervisors. I mean, the, the, the project that I had, um, recently recording, um, we had to do so much, some, so many things that weren't composition as well necessarily that you then start to realize that, oh, it's, it's, compo- it's composition, it's composers, but there's so much else. But, um, I mean, that's, that's, that's for later, but I mean, Hans, John, I love, uh, Michael Abel's, or Abel's, I never really knew the pronunciation, but, um, I love his stuff on us recently mm-hmm. um i think it's part of the is like ever since i heard it in us that was like it <laughs> i was like yes yes i mean it's, it's it's technically a cover but just the way it's done it's just like wow um and then anthem also from that i think they're like tracks well anthem is track one because it's, it's the bunny scene in the beginning um i don't remember exactly part of does like near the end but those two songs are just like, yes, Michael, you are now just up there for composers. I mean, there's a bunch of other music that he has that's great, but those two songs sold me. I mean, there's Ludwig Gorenson. Um, oh, there's a host of people. But John is at the top. <laughs> <laughs> and John Williams, of course, would have scored um, films like Jaws. E.T. E. The Star Wars films. Star Wars Harry films. I mean, John's list. Is a legend. A legend. Even if even if anyone out there doesn't know John, you know John. Yeah, this yeah, you know his music because every little That's child in you know playing in the sea or in a bathtub has said da dum da dum da dum dum dum. Yep, yep, yep. And then I guess for 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 for. One other person, Junkie XL, who, I mean, his music's great, and, I mean, you can say a whole lot about that as well, but I feel like his approach to just, um, what else besides Composer is also so interesting, because Junkie's like, I mean, he's, he's made his Hollywood career and, you know, whatnot, but he's also focused on, you know, education. Junkie has a YouTube channel where he's, he basically just lets you inside his studio and he shows you what he does. I mean, he did a lead up battle angel. He did the music for, uh, Mad Max Fury Road and stuff. And he's like, I mean, I don't really know anyone else who's worked on, you know, stuff of that level. and will literally be like, Hey, here's my Cubase session. This is how I do my things. You know, like breaks it down completely. You can check his YouTube channel. He has all that stuff there. And I mean, you just, I mean, it's free education, literally that he takes his time and money and effort and whatnot and, and puts into to, to making these things. I just feel like, you know, that alone, plus just the, the quality of his music is just like, yeah, you deserve to be very, very well-known and highly regarded. So John Excel as well is, is on, you know, the total list. Now, a few weeks ago, you released a video, casually, of yourself... <laughs> Conducting conducting a massive orchestra in London, and the orchestra was playing a piece called "Cadence of the Swarm" that you composed. 
Yes, indeed. Tell us about that experience. This thing is fit for any film at this point. (laughs) Walk us from concept to execution. Concept to execution. Okay, so... Um, well, I guess the first thing to to to, to put out there is uh, I don't know how many people really realize it, but um, the whole um, process of this was fueled by you know my master's thesis at Berkeley. So the entire thing was pretty much that thesis, um, or it was the culmination of that thesis. Per se. It was the main element, and you know the experience was a culmination of it. But um. As 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 school goes, you know, it started with just this is an assignment that you need to complete. Um, but then you get the you know guidelines and what you need to do for this assignment, and it was pretty much you know find some media. I mean, it could be a video, it could be a picture, something to inspire you um, to write a piece of music. Um, we had you know the technical guidelines; it couldn't be longer than three minutes. Um, and I don't know, just other other little things put together like that. But um, it started like that, and you know, we go through basically what we've learned about composing for media in the process. And so we start with, you know, you put the I, I chose I chose a video. Actually, let me go back to that. So I chose a, I, I I had three other videos in consideration to use to score to. Um, and they all fell through for different reasons. Um, but then I landed at a video on a video by uh, Sa- Sasha uh, Gerhardt, or yeah, I think it's Gerhardt, um, and called "The Rise and Fall of Globosum." Yes, mm-hmm. that is it. Um, and it's a film. It's an animated short that he did, I think, back in 2013 or 14. And um, you know, I found it and I liked it. I mean, I like animation as well. But I liked it. It was CGI animation. And I was like, okay, I was getting the vibe of, like, I would like to use this as my inspiration, you know, whatnot. So I contacted him, you know, I found his website, whatnot, contacted him, asked him, you know, I told him what it was, asked him for permission to use it. He was like, yeah. Um, So, okay, we had the video. First step down. So then we used the video. We put it in um, the workstation, the audio workstation we were using. Which at that time was Digital Performer. Um, so we loaded up, you know, we watched through it a bit, you know, we start putting in hit points, you know, this is an important important action, important event on screen, blah blah blah. So you just kinda start it's like a spotting session but for myself. Um, so we did all of that. And then you start writing. And I mean I guess everyone has a different writing process. I don't even completely remember exactly how I how I started it. I think, unlike what most people might do, I didn't really use a, a like a piano track and just like play around with the piano. I just jumped straight into instruments. Um, we knew what the orchestra lineup was, so we knew what instruments we had to work with. So I pretty much just loaded in everything that um, everything that I knew we would have. Um, took up all my RAM. Needed more RAM, should have got the 32, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> and, you know, we just start running. You know, you just start playing around with ideas, you know. Oh, let's make the strings do this. Okay, that doesn't work. Okay, maybe we, 
you know, we move it up an octave or maybe we change it completely or maybe we put it in a different string section or whatnot. Um, but we do that. And, you know, I did maybe, so the total length of it is about three, well, it's three minutes exactly. I was like, I'm going to use all the time that I can use. Um, and I think I did maybe about 30 seconds, 45 seconds. And then we had these, um, like meetings you'd have to go to with, um, like our professors, you know, to, you know, talk, talk about it, you know, see where we're at, you know, give any advice, if anything or whatnot. So I did a bit of it. I went to my professor and he was, you know, giving me advice on, on things. Um, and sometimes it would be like, oh, maybe you might want to change this or whatnot. And then I guess it's like, it's almost simulating a director who comes to you and it's like, I want, like, I like this, but well, this would be a nice way if you got a director to say it like this, but I like this, but maybe this needs to change or, you know, whatnot. Um, and... The good thing is, because they weren't directors, you didn't necessarily have to listen. Now, please listen to directors. I mean, <laughs> the, the vision, the film, the vision for the film and the film in itself coming together is the most important thing. So when you're actually doing it for a project, you want to, you know, you want to keep that in mind. I mean, you're, you're doing, I mean, what they always say is for when we're doing the major, it's scoring four film tv and video games it's not just scoring you're scoring for these things so you need to make sure it works you know with you know the final vision but since we didn't have a director i was pretty much a director i was free to do whatever so yay um and so yeah we had those those little bits of input from the professors but you know we had a deadline which i don't remember exactly what it was but we had to finish everything by i think it was a couple of days before we went to london um, and so, you know, you finish what, so the, the process that I was describing earlier was pretty much the orchestral mock-up and it's basically trying to make as realistic as possible using samples, a version of your piece. So you, you know what you want it to sound like. So we do that first. Um, Interesting. and then from that, you know, we take the media that we use and we export it into, well, we use Sibelius, some people use Finale. But basically, uh, music notation software, and um, then we start to build the score. So you know, I mean, you got to put in everything. I mean, your notes go in yeah, but then you got to put in all the expression. You know, um, certain techniques and whatnot. You might have to write it out a certain way. But I mean, you basically build the score. So we build the score. You know, you take some time doing that. That in itself was a fun experience because I think my score was what like eleven pages, something like that. Um, which I don't know to some mightn't seem like a lot to others might seem like a lot depends but at least for that moment it was a lot um, but what was even more is once you're finished with the score we had to do music prep and at least me for one had not done music prep at least to that level ever in my life and basically what the music prep was was or score prep I should say I guess it might be more accurate um, is you know, you print out the music. We have the orchestra that needs to play it, so they need the music to play. So we need to print out, basically, let's per, see. Per instrument. Yes. So we have, it was a 51-piece orchestra. Oh my so 51 people. No, the strings share stands. So uh, it's, it's desks. 
And so, like, the first violins, I think we had 10 first violins. And so, for example, you'd only print five um, pieces of music for the, the first violins because, you know, two people share a stand, two people share a stand, so five. Um, and then the second violins, I think it was, I don't know, maybe eight. So that's four, four, four pieces of music for them. And it goes down the line like that for the strings. The basses, they each had, there's three of them, they each had their own individual. But then all the other instruments, they get, you know, individual pieces. Because, you know, there's two trumpets, but it's trumpet one, trumpet two. So they have different, you know, they have different music. The French horns, they have their own and whatnot. Um, so this is us printing out almost 50 different pieces of, or 50 different uh, parts for for the musicians. Um, no, this is like parts that may be two pages, three pages, four pages, depending on which instrument it is. Right. So you're putting out all of those pages for the for the for the orchestra members to play. You have to tape them together. So you, I mean, so one when they're playing, they could just turn pages almost like a book, but also to help just keep everything together and organized. And then on top of that, you have the conductor scores, which is eleven pieces of paper plus the title page that I had, and I've printed about what's it, three maybe four. I mean, it was me is the one I had. Then it was the engineer's one. We had Jake Jackson engineer the session at air. Um, he had a score, and then I think I had one other for his assistant one or two, and then we had the, the professors, they were basically like producing, so, you know, just listening and offering feedback um, during the recording. Um, they had probably one or two others, so it was maybe like four or five different um, the conductor main scores that I printed, so that's, you know, that's about 55 pieces of paper alone without the orchestra, you know what I mean? And then you tape all that together. I mean, that that was a night of printing and taping for like everyone involved in that program right there. And that was so so that was so much work in itself that you you then start to realize, oh, this is why they have specific services for this. Right. No, but how long does it take to go again from from concept to like the moment of of conducting uh, the piece? In terms, it was it a, a two week process or a or a two-month process? So, we we actually had, we technically, because of just how it was, we had months to do it. Um, it didn't take months. I want to say, oof, let's see, if I condense the time down, because I, I, you know, I didn't do it all straight. I mean, if I condense the time down, it might have been, it might have been two weeks. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't feel like I would have done it in two straight weeks. Um, I mean, if it's necessary, then, for sure, but if it's not, you know, take the breaks because honestly, the breaks between also help because you know you get away from it, you go back to it, you realize certain things, you have new inspiration, you can add things. But if I condense it down, it, it might be about you know two, three weeks of you know actual composition time, score prep time, part, well, composition time, music notation time, score prep time, you know. Then once that's done, that's pretty much the package that you take to London to record. Uh, we also had like conducting classes while we were there, and I mean, that's a whole thing in itself, which that takes time. You know what I mean? I mean, I feel like a lot of people see conductors up there, um, whether it's you know live concert or film recordings, film scoring recording, and 
I mean, best case scenario, they might just say they don't know what it is, but, you know, some people are just like, oh, why? Like, are you even necessary? You're just up there just waving or whatever. And it's like, it it differs. Like, for example, in the film recording, they're not relying on us as much for tempo, but they're relying on us a lot for expression. And you need to understand, you know, you can sell expression to, to an orchestra very you know, very well through how they're conducted. Okay. Um, so it's not just, you know, just waving a stick around and, you know, whatever. This is where your your background from the ABRSM kicks in because you know how the terminal mezzo forte. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you have to know it. I mean, these are, I mean, these musicians, I swear, like, I mean, you come into the session and you're like, okay, they're great musicians, but you don't really understand how level how 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 great their level is until i mean you hear them play and then you realize what they're playing i mean you might hear certain pieces um and it's just like i mean they sound great and whatnot but it mightn't particularly sound difficult to you but then you look at the score i know for example in my score um i had a section that when you hear it in the in the in the actual piece it's a slow section it doesn't really sound complicated or whatnot but for me I highly doubt I'd be able to play it because rhythmically, what I basically had happening is, I mean, they wear headphones and they have a click track going, you know, with the metronome that I have programmed to the Pro Tool session, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so that's going in their ear. And I could have written in, I could have just written, like I wanted it to slow down. I could have just written like retardando, you know, slow down, right? But that's a little loose. And like I said, I like to be precise with things. So... What I did instead was I just took the time and kind of hard-coded a, a retardando, a slow down into a consistent tempo. So it would it would it would drag behind the tempo even though the tempo you're hearing is is consistent, you know, it would be like a quarter note, you know, on this beat and then it would kind of change to like just like a a, a quarter of a beat off. Or like an eighth of a beat off, or well, it, it it changed as it went, but it wasn't just like oh, slow down arbitrarily. It was like precisely slow down in this manner. I personally don't think I could play it. I mean, not without proper practice. And they come in, and I think it's important to say they had not seen the music any time before. Right. They right. all play this music like it was literally "Hi, my name is," you know. You put the music on their stands, and when you when it's your turn to record, they flip open to it. And it's like, all right, let's play this. As we say, sight reading. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. But they're sight reading stuff that I'm like, I wrote the thing, and I'm saying, like, I need time to figure out how to play this rhythm that I wrote. And then they just, like, I go up there, and I'm like, we had about 18 minutes to get the music recorded. Um, so I'm there, like, in my head, like, okay, we're probably going to need a couple of takes for this. So, you know, you, you kind of try to plan the session to see how it might need to go. So in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, we go through it, you know, we play it through once, we record that, and then we probably need to focus on the session. When we get to the section, and I'm conducting it, and they just play through it like nothing, I'm just like, oh, well, have me excused. <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah, because I was going to ask how many, take, how many takes it took. Uh, I don't remember. I mean, the, the, the thing is, I mean, I don't remember how many takes we actually ended up doing. It's it's in the session. I have all the takes. But, like, they pretty much played it right off the bat. 
and pretty much every other take was just, you know, we want it softer here, you know, make the crescendo grow a bit more here. Like, that was it. It wasn't any, you play the round note, you know? It was like, just express this differently. That was, that was pretty much it. What, like, what, that was the majority. Were you visualizing anything as you wrote it? Because it's such a beautiful piece. Uh, thanks. Um, <laughs> I guess the visuals, because like I said, I have the video. Um, I haven't released the video. I think, well, I might ask, because uh, I didn't ask Sasha for like permission to release it as a new thing. It was more of just to use it. So I may, I may go back to him and ask him about that. But um, a lot of the inspiration came from the video. And it's this, um, it's like this thing that that was inspired by well, climate change, basically. Mm. And um, and it's to me, it's this beautiful thing done where you have these creatures, these sentient creatures that are like, they, are, they arrive on the planet. They arrive on pretty much a, an empty, dark planet. And, you know, they spring up, they form life, they multiply, you know, they spread across the planet. And... And they start developing, and it's it's pretty much a parallel to, to, to humans in a sense. Um, and then you know this lush green you know environment has come up, and I feel like you know you can you can kind of picture certain parts of it, but this is what I was seeing when I was scoring it. So this is what I was you know basing all my music off of. But yeah, there was like lush green area and whatnot, and they multiply, and then you know they start you know going around and just doing things whatnot. But then you know, there comes a part where, you know, they start cutting trees down, basically, you know, which deforestation, I mean, you know, you start getting into these darker things, and it was all going towards development of technology, you know, it was like the, the, the relationship between that, you know, okay, we're going for developing technology, but at what cost, um, and, you know, just the imagery, it, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful, um, animation i mean you can find the original one the rise and fall of uh globosum you can just google it it should pop up so you can find the original one to see the imagery and that's pretty much what the inspiration was mm-hmm. um but i mean it just takes you all over and i feel like that's what ended up being reminiscent in my piece because i mean you know i had to you know what i mean right like, but hence hence the and, name as well cadence of the swarm Right, and so you know that that came out of you know all of that, which is basically. I mean, I watched the video. I don't even know how many times though, and <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, I've I've seen the video and I've heard the music so many times that it's just like. I mean, I posted it. I mean, late as well because it's just kind of like, ah, right, let's just let's just put this to the side for a bit, but um. But um, no, it's like Cadence of the Swarm. It was kind of a thing where, okay, these are creatures. And, you know, when you see them, it was just reminiscent to me of a swarm. It's this swarm of creatures that, you know, it starts at one. And once they multiply, it just it just multiplies into this swarm. You know, like you think of swarm, you think, you know, bees and whatnot. They stick together. And, um, you know, I mean, that's basically how they moved. It was this whole togetherness of like, we're doing this thing. So that came from that. And then just the way, I mean, the way they moved, the way the events were unfolding and whatnot, I just felt like it was, you know, this ebb and flow of 
you know, almost like the tide of, you know, okay, this thing is great, and then it pulls back to this other thing, and then it goes back up to this high-low dynamic. And to me, I mean, it was just it was this rhythmic thing, and I remember thinking about the name, and, you know, I try to put some kind of effort into names, because sometimes we don't, you know. <laughs> when, when sometimes you have files on your computers that are just like Project One, you know, Oh, no, producers are famous for that. I remember looking for a project for an artist um, at a producer's studio, and we couldn't find it. We couldn't get in contact with him. And when we finally got in contact with him, um, the file's name was HHH. <laughs> it's, you know... I mean, I don't... Yeah, that... The first I, thing that, that, that producers think to themselves, they just type it on the keyboard. some letters in here to you know let it save just to save this um right. I, obviously this is a podcast but for the audience the <laughs> video of Cordain's compos uh composition and the, with the orchestra the video of cadence of the swarm will be posted on the website if you're listening on, <laughs> if you're listening on apple podcast then you can go over to www.planet30.com and that's spelled Planet T H I R T Y dot com. Just have to stick that in there because um, you guys have to see this video. This video is phenomenal, and Cordain is doing a great job at uh, directing his orchestra. So, Cordain, switching gears a little bit, uh, we've done a lot of music talk, a lot of tech talk, um, a little a bit on the lighter side. People, obviously, because it's a podcast, don't know how tall you are. <laughs> Tell us how tall you are. Well, um, let's see. So, officially, from you know the doctor's measurements or whatnot, it would say six foot six and a half. But I feel like that's cumbersome to say regularly, so I tend to just trend to six seven. Um. Which is I don't know, one hundred and ninety something centimeters. You yeah. are six foot seven. Um, you're you had a love for basketball, obviously at that height, and yep. um, you know many people are born with one really good talent. Some people have one and a half. You, my friend, ended up with two extreme talents you were an excellent basketball player you are and an excellent musician um you know some people are blessed with one you you by the luck of the draw genetics your parents decided to get married and that combination spawned this guy who's good at music and basketball if you were to stick to basketball if you were to go down the path of basketball and, and had ignored your music, which college team would you have preferred to play for? So I feel like uh, back in the day, I think I would have 100% said Duke. Duke. And the, okay, the reason I would say 100% say it or pick it or whatnot is, is like, I love Duke, I love Kentucky. I mean, there's a bunch of schools that I, that I, that I, that I really like. But I feel like, at least from Duke's reputation, I've never been to Duke or anything, but I feel like from Duke's reputation, um, younger me would have said, this would be the school that would be good for basketball plus 
my mom would be okay with the academic Academic. side of it. (laughs) So, great. And so I feel like at least it would be, you know, up top for a choice. I mean, granted, no, without further experience, all the other experiences I've had since, you know, I guess my teens or whatnot, you know, UCLA mother came into the mix. I was going to say, because you did go to school in California. I spent a bunch of time in Cali. I mean, we, UCSD, we we only had a D2 school for basketball while I was there. They're planning to. I don't know if they have already, but they're supposed to be moving to D1. Um, either they already have or they're supposed to do it recently or soon. Um, Did but, you play at all in college, like even for fun? I mean, I played for fun. I played in the mural um, basketball. I, I made some good friends actually playing basketball uh, through uni. And... I mean, I feel like if I really, really wanted to, I could have, um, I could have probably tried out to to walk onto the team. I mean, and I say it just because I did play some of the people who were on the team, and I mean, I don't know how serious they were taking it, you know, you'll see. But it wasn't, it wasn't a slouch, you know. So I feel like to some degree, I would have been able to, you know, uh, join that team. Well, capacity, I don't know. Maybe I would have gotten like two minutes a game, maybe four, maybe, you know. No, you're being modest because if I remember correctly, at one point, even while you were in high school, there were um, American coaches looking at you. Oh, yeah, there was a few, um, there were a few, well, different sets of people who, you know, would have came down, whether for basketball camps or just in connection with other things. And, um, no, we finished high school at, at 16. So once I was done with, you know, high school in Angola from the, like, mandatory high school at least, I had what would have been two two more years of eligibility for high school in the U.S. And so a lot of them, you know, came and, you know, talked about it, what that. Um, it didn't happen, but, you know, the interest was there to a degree, at least at the high school level. I mean, I did it even, even though I didn't go to high school in the U.S. after to do basketball. Um, I still played, you know, regularly enough while I was home. And, you know, there was a small D3 school actually in Philly that uh, was interested. And I actually went out there for a visit. I mean, I wasn't too sold on the D3 ball, but, you know, it was a thing. <laughs> you were like D1 or nothing. <laughs> I mean, pretty much. It was, it was kind of like, I mean, if I'm going to do this to do it, you know, as sport. Because, I mean, uh, college sports take so much time. Like so much time. I had I had friends who you know, I had a friend who was uh, UCSD. I had a couple of friends who were UCSD uh, softball um, and some other you know college sports basically. And they take so much extra time. It's like you have to do this, but you also have to do the academics. And it's just like you know if I mean you always hear about you know in the NBA or whatnot the one and dones you know they go to school you know freshman year they're out. You go, I mean, that's not everyone, but it's like, this is the goal. And for me, it just kind of felt like, yeah, D3 is nice to be nice to play, but, you know, my whole school thing was like, hey, what are we here to do to get out of this? I mean, there's experiences, you know, personal, social, whatever you want to call it, but, you know, the core of it was, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going for academics at this point, um, and I'd much rather... You know, see myself at, and it wasn't a bad school by, by any means. It's just like I had other options as well, and that one was much more tied to the basketball side of me going there than anything else. 
Um, plus, that was in Philly. And about the same time while I was there, I got the acceptance letter from San Diego. And they had like a snowstorm in Philly. <laughs> and That'll change your mind. Getting getting an acceptance letter from San Diego when you're in the Philly snowstorm was like, a, oh, okay, I, I think I know what we're doing. You know, coming from <laughs> the Caribbean of hot weather year round, this is generally an easy decision. A no brainer, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, if you, you if know, that happened, ha- that's that was a thing. Had you finished a, a Division One program? What NBA team <laughs> would you have preferred to go to? I mean, any anyone who I talk basketball with would probably say because most of the people who I have have you know their one diehard team, be it the Celtics, the Lakers, the Pistons, the, the Heat. You know, I tend to not really trend towards one team. I never have. It was like, well, I wasn't. I wasn't born in the U.S. or whatever, so I don't have a city that I'm, like, you know, affiliated with. Um, and then I just kind of follow the players that I like. You know, I like you. Okay, you're on this team. But the same way how teams flip players around, I was just kind of like, you know, I I go with, you know, who I like. Saying all that to say, there's certain organizations that I feel like I would, I would, I would be good with. Um, you know, the Mavericks, the Spurs, um... I feel like the Lakers are just there because it's like it's the Lakers. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, but I would, I would at least at this point, I would say the Mavs. I mean, Mark Cuban's. I mean, probably if not the best owner in the the NBA, somewhere up there. And I feel like you know it, it's such a management; it, it goes all the way down. But um, you know, they they in that organization they. I mean, they take care of players, but also, I mean, them and, I mean, like the Rockets, for example, Dallin Morey, I mean, he got himself in the hot water, but, you know, different story there. But um, <laughs> statistics, analytics, you know, again, I love that stuff of just getting into, like, the nitty-gritty of, you know, advanced stats. And I feel like the teams that, 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 that you know, like that as well are teams that I, tr- I tend to, you know, go after. I mean, I, I, for example, with the Warriors, it's like everyone, everyone loves to hate the those guys. If you know what I mean. Yeah, the but, winners. <laughs> right. It's like personally, I'm like, okay, I get it, but at the same time, it's like, how do you fault them for just doing their job well? Um, and just from that standpoint, it's just kind of like, why wouldn't you play for them? You know, I remember like everyone. Everyone got into to uproar when, when KD went, for example. And it's just kind of like, well, here's a situation where a team sees an opportunity, you know, salary cap stuff, you know, all the, all the backstory and whatnot. But it's like, you know, they see an opportunity where they legally, I mean, through, through how the CBA is constructed and whatnot, they can get this player. Why would they not go, why would they not go after him? You know what I mean? Precisely. No. KD's decision... You can you can debate on that as as you want. As a player, I mean, you can have your opinion on that. But as a team, I feel like that's that's your job to put together the best team. So you know, when an opportunity like that arises, you can't not go after it. He made the decision he made, and you know things. So like, I mean, you know, just management like that. Like, I'll just go after teams 
you know, if I was the one joining a team, I'd go after that type of thing. Um, because I feel like, you know, it's a mix of eye test and data that, that at least in the modern age, that, that drives success. Um, you can't just focus on the numbers. You can't just focus on the looks. Um, you have to you have to kind of find a balance and say, I feel like, yeah, the maths. The intangibles. The, exactly. I mean, there's, there's so many things that go into it that, you know, you have to be aware. I feel like what happens with some things is, you know, they get stuck in some kind of old way of thinking or something that they're just comfortable with. And it may be going out, but this is what they want to do, you know? And, you know, as players, you can you can go to teams like this, but in the long run, you know, it might be good for this year, this season, but two years from now, three years from now, four years from now, you know, you sign contracts and whatnot. Everyone, I mean, you just have to think about these things and... In, in, and what happens in the next five years? And so, yeah, for, for reasons like that, I feel like, you know, me personally, I'd say, like, you know, the match. It would, it would have been more of a business decision for you. Right. Exactly. Got I mean, it. I feel like a lot of people forget about the business side of the NBA. It starts to come up a little bit more now, especially with, you know, movement of players happening more often. But, you know, there's certain shifts in mentality that aren't really discussed as much. Like, um, you know, people are starting to, well, stars at least are starting to, you know, do more shorter term contracts to have more control over movement. You know, do I, do I want to stay here or not? You know, LeBron's been signing one year contracts for I don't know how long, you know, whereas back in the day, like we all know from the Jordan documentaries, Scotty well, Pippen, signed. Pippen was in there for eight years? Exactly. You know what I mean? And it's like, at that time, it was more like, I just want financial security because, you know, I need this. Well, the I mean, salary was different at the time. Right. But now it's like, okay, we, we get money. I mean, Curry and them making probably like $40 million a year. Um, and it's just like, where do you, where do you, where do you draw the line of, 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 I guess for the team, this is a good decision for the team, but, you know, player relationship, for example, if I, if I get rid of this guy, someone might get upset that I don't want to get upset. You know, player relationship is like, or just player, you know, what's best for me? I mean, like I said, KD, KD's moved to the Warriors. I mean, everyone debates it. And it's like, I guess he did. I guess. I'm sure he did what he felt was best for him. I mean, people don't like it because, you know, you're, you're supposed to stick with this team for whatnot, or you're not supposed to join. You know, they they, they had him basically in the, in, the, in the season before that, and then you, you basically joined the enemy. It's like, you're not supposed to do that, you know? And I mean, you could feel that way about about it. He probably didn't agree to disagree. You know, you go from there. Mm-hmm. But there's so many things now that, that changed since, you know, basketball in the 90s, basketball in the 80s. Look, you know, 80s, 70s, stuff that I don't even know about other than, you know, watching tape. You um, you obviously have a deep passion for basketball. Cordain oh, Richardson is, is as versed in music as he is in basketball. <laughs> <laughs> I try to I try to touch, you know, different topics. I mean, anything that gets interesting, I feel like you might as well get into it, you know, if you have the interest. Because if you get that conversation and you can't really talk about it, then can you really say <laughs> yeah. you know it? Very true, very true. Yeah. Here, here's yeah. a question I forgot to ask you earlier. What is your favorite film genre? <laughs> 
film genre. Um, let's say sci-fi, high fantasies type things. I mean, Christopher Nolan films. I guess that like metaphysical type vibe, whatever you want to call it. Uh-huh. Um, but like I love, I love pretty much you know all of Chris's films. I mean. Everything. What's your favorite film of his? Huh? What's your favorite film that he's done? Uh, It's hard to pick. I want to say it's. I want to say it's Inception. Mm. Um, but actually, it was interesting because um, oh, what was that film? Um, The Prestige. I didn't watch The Prestige until, I mean, relatively recently, I guess, and. I love The Prestige when I watched it. I mean, I think I think The Prestige came out in, like, 06 or something. And I had watched Inception. It came out in 2010. I watched Interstellar, which came out in 2014, all before I watched The Prestige. And then when I finally did watch The Prestige, I was like, ooh, this makes this hard. <laughs> because just, I mean, from concept to just, this is just, like, everything he did. I mean, that's technically, like, psychological thriller or whatnot, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, it like shot, like, I, here, here I was just basically thinking, oh, it's it's a decision between Inception and Interstellar. And then the prestige just came in and was like, oh, wait, maybe. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, um, for me, I, I guess I'm still just, I, I leave it at Inception. Got it, got it. What's, um, and- What's next for Cordain Richardson? What are you working on now? Uh, currently, I mean, there's, there's there's a lot of older projects, actually, that I'm trying to, you know, clean up, edit together, or whatever the case would be, and put together. Um, and, you know, I'll try to have those out for listening, um, probably on SoundCloud, plus um, I'm, I'm trying to get the website, you know, fully done, put together, and it'll be up. Should be uh just CordainRichardson.com. Um so that should be up relatively soon. Um there's there's a there's a I guess series project that should be hopefully ongoing that I want to I mean I kinda of started on it already and um it's basically how do I say it without saying it? It's me doing covers. I mean one of my things is just kinda of drawing from the musical experiences that I've had growing up, um, which are very different to, I guess, the music that I ended up doing now. Um, and I'm trying to find ways to, you know, blend it together in a, in a sense. Oh, that should be interesting. Right. And so I have, I have some ideas for doing that. And I have some things, you know, starting to put together, um, which I'll, you know, go back to and tackle properly once I finish some of the other stuff. But um, I don't want to say too much about it. No, you don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to, brother. <laughs> but 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 it'll 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 come. It'll come. And I mean, I, to me, I think it, it'll be interesting because I feel like it'll be a thing where you know, here's here's you know, certain music that that you know we know, I guess, Anguilla plus you know the wider Caribbean, um, that we associate you know with us. And then there's, you know, stuff that I do now. And it's just, you know, finding that intersection and trying to blend it in a way 
we'll see if we'll see once I get it done and, and get it out. You know, we'll see how people receive it. But you know, it's definitely at this point the main thing is just you know getting more stuff out there because I got you know I got hard drives of things that you know they were just kind of there. I am not too much of a social media you know public person per se. Um, so this thing came out, you know, I put this thing out and, you know, people received it a lot better than I thought. And I appreciate everyone, you know, for all the support. Um, and so now it just kind of made me think, okay, let's, let's, you know, put more out there, you know, so I'm just trying to scramble together and, you know, get everything sorted. I do have like one other thing on SoundCloud right now. So, I mean, you could find that and check it, but I should have, you know, consolidated, um, portfolio almost put up on your on website. website when it comes out and um it'll just grow from there so you know you can keep an eye on that once it comes out got it and Cordain, what is your ultimate goal like at the end of it all what do you want to say i've you know what is that thing that you want to accomplish is it an oscar is it a grammy what what, what is your big thing or is it just happiness <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, happiness. I mean, and, and and it's good because, because I mean, it is, I have moments of just composition where I'll sit, it is a time waster sometimes, but I'll sit and just listen to like, you know, two counterpoint lines going at it, you know, between two instruments that I wrote just because I like how it sounds. And it's just that joy from, I mean, something so simple um, that for some people would be like, what, why? But I mean, you know, I found this thing that was like a great thing to have. The awards are nice. I mean, getting them would be nice and whatnot. But it's I don't I don't think it's so much of a focus. I feel like it's just like, can we make as much good content as possible that people would enjoy, get it out there, and you know, hopefully change something for someone. You know, whether that's you know, introducing them to something new or, you know, making them, you know, brightening up their day from listening to something or watching something, you know, just that kind of, just that kind of, that kind of vibe, you know, I feel like, I feel like everything else can come with it and, you know, that's great, but it shouldn't be the focus. I feel like if it's the focus, then, you know, you're going to lose some, some aspect of the actual music or just the content in general, so... Yeah, it's 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 first and foremost just doing a good job on whatever content creation is done, and I say whatever content creation because you know it's it's it's, it's a music focus right now, but there's so many other things that I I try to dip into um, that I feel like who knows you know it could come mm-hmm. up with oh I did this or I did this um, so just you know content doing it well and hopefully being received well by people got it now according this is a section of the interview that i like to call the planet is yours i strap on my spacesuit and i jump into outer space and i leave you on planet 30 alone to say to the people whatever it is you want to say the floor is yours uh well i guess i'd just like to start by saying uh by saying thanks to everyone um for like i said the support it's been overwhelming but it's been great. I mean, I never expected it. So much love. And um, yeah, just keep checking out, you know, the YouTube channel. It's going to start up. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll just try to post, you know, as much as I can possibly there. 
Um, the website, like I said, CordaRichardson.com. It should be up soon, so check that out. Instagram, I'll probably try to post more on that as well. And, yeah, I mean, keep it going. Give us your Instagram and your uh, and your YouTube. Uh, the Instagram is uh, Cordain, C-O-R-D-A-N-E-R-2-5. Um, and that's pretty much any social media that I have. And uh, YouTube, well, YouTube is just my name, so Cordain Richardson. You just YouTube it and you should find it. If you if you YouTube Cadence of the Swarm, you'll also find it there. So shouldn't, not, not many people, if any, that I know of have my name. Thank you, mother. Thank you, father. So it shouldn't <laughs> be too hard. Oh, man. The son of legendary musician... Daphne Jacobs Richardson and painter extraordinaire Corvette Richardson, composer, basketball lover, Cordain Richardson, thank you so much for being on Planet 30. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet 30. Our email address is onplanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30.